Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. Thanks for joining us for this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Gabe will be with us in the second half of the show. I'm Paul Perot, and we've been talking lately about Q 2018, the annual Q conference coming up April 11th through the 13th in Nashville. And we hope you visit qideas.org slash 2018 for conference details. The Q conferences are a time of not just learning, but also leaning in and listening. And sometimes listening to things that may be difficult or uncomfortable at varying levels. But necessary. This week, we want to delve into the LGBT issue and how we as followers of Jesus can stand for truth, but to do so graciously and lovingly. For that, we have a couple of talks from recent Q events. Gabe will introduce the second shortly, but first, we want to listen to a fellow believer who has struggled with her sexual identity. Her name is Melinda Semlis. While she believes in God's design for sexuality, she herself struggles with gender dysphoria. Let's take a listen. When I first became a Christian, this profoundly changed my relationship with my femininity. Before that, I was an atheist, radical feminist, and I believed that basically the feminine was the dumping ground where patriarchy threw all of the bits of the human condition that they didn't want to keep. Naturally, this did not make femininity very appealing to me. St. Paul's theology of strength and weakness allowed me to realize that Rather than getting rid of the qualities that were feminine, um, it was more truly feminist to insist that they had value. I was nowhere near being the ideal of Christian womanhood, but I figured that this was a mostly ideological problem and I could work on it. Within a year, I felt I had made tremendous progress. I'd fallen in love with a man. I was pregnant. I felt more feminine than I had in my life. Fast forward 13 years later, and I suddenly found myself with tremendous, overwhelming gender dysphoria. I felt like I didn't belong in my body. Putting on women's clothing felt like I was dressing in drag. And I was really fearful about my ability to be a mother to my six children. I felt that I was failing at one of my most important tasks as a Christian. And I was severely depressed and uh, almost on the point of losing my faith. I wrestled with this for about two and a half years, and then one morning I woke up and I had the bizarre thought, I don't really feel like being conflicted about my gender today. I think I'm going to go sew some doll clothes. Two weeks later, the pregnancy test came back positive, and I realized that what happened about a year after I converted to Christianity was I got pregnant. And what changed 13 years later was that for the first time in my adult life, I was neither pregnant nor nursing. I didn't like this. I prefer ideological and spiritual at the outside psychological explanations for my life because then it's in my control. And this was clearly a case where to some degree I was at the mercy of my body. So gender dysphoria is a multidimensional phenomenon. Uh, It exists on a spectrum. You might draw an analogy to something like visual impairment. Someone who needs really thick Coke bottle glasses to see is visually impaired 
so is somebody who is born without a functioning visual cortex. Management strategies that work for person number one will probably be totally ineffectual for person number two. And I want to keep that in mind as I talk about five different dimensions of what gender dysphoria is like, at least for me. First, the body. Um, we tend to think of transsexualism in terms of a dualistic conflict between the body and the mind. Some people who are trans also have intersex conditions, and there is a possibility that there are neurological or hormonal intersex conditions that we're not yet good at diagnosing. There's also the way that we relate to our body. We have a sense. It's called proprioception. It's not one of the five that you learn in kindergarten, but it's the feeling that the parts of my body are parts of my body. It's possible for somebody to have a body map that doesn't align with what is actually physically there. So when I have intense dysphoria, I have a male concept of self, and then it becomes very bizarre and alienating when I'm reminded that I have breasts. A friend of mine speaks of having a really gnawing, aching sense of pain in her abdomen when she becomes aware of the absence of a womb. There's a great story in Herodotus where a group of Amazons arrive at the shores of a foreign land, and they're not able to integrate into the local culture because they ride, they hunt, they wield weapons. And they had this feeling of alienation in a culture where women are expected to be domestic homebodies that's kind of analogous to gender role dysphoria writ large. The difference is that for somebody with gender dysphoria, it feels like being a stranger in a strange land even in your own country. The customs of women are very strange to me. I can kind of learn them, but it's a little bit like learning the etiquette of the Japanese. There was a study done in Prussia many, many years ago, back when Prussia was still a thing, where they wanted to prove that men were intellectually superior to women. So they gave men and women a uh, series of moral questions. And the men would usually say, X is right, Y is wrong. The women would generally say, well, I would need more information, or it depends. So naturally, this demonstrated that women were wishy-washy, emotionally driven, and sloppy fingers. What it actually indicates is that we expect men and women to think differently, and we train men and women to think differently. Um, one of the things I've found as a female writer is that readers and editors expect me to write in a way that is personable, relatable, emotional, and I really want to write in a way that is abstract, dispassionate, logical. I've had to train myself to write the way people think a woman writes in order to build a readership. If I describe someone to you as open-hearted, gentle, kind, what are you going to picture? Usually probably a woman. If I say that they're courageous, just, upstanding, uh, hardworking, probably a man. So what happens when we have a guy who is meek, sensitive, accommodating? Well, very often he will be told that his virtues, the best things about him, are weak or effeminate and he may be penalized or even punished for things that are good. Now, what if you have a woman who is strong, tough, rational? She will not be penalized. She will be praised for being like a man. Now, obviously, there's some deep-seated social misogyny here, but aside from that, the way that we gender virtue can actually drive feelings of dysphoria. Because if I'm told that the things that I know are good about myself, the virtues that God has graced me with are 
masculine, then when I display those, it makes it more difficult for me to relate to myself as a feminine person. Finally, emotion, my least favorite subject. These are a complex interplay between hormones, socialization, and personality. Uh, We all know that women are supposed to be more emotional than men, and this is absolutely true if you pretend that anger and lust are not emotions. (laughs) But it's not just a matter of socialization. Um, There are actually biophysical differences in the way that men and women emote. You know, a friend of me who, of mine who had recently transitioned and just started to go on estrogen wrote to me one day panicking um, because she was having an emotion that she had never experienced before and she didn't know what it was or how to process it. I've also encountered detransitioning women. That's women who transitioned to male and transitioned back, um, who decided to go off of testosterone because they found it made them aggressive in a way that they found disturbing. Now, there are natural differences in the way that different bodies will produce and interpret hormones. It's not just whether those hormones are flowing through your body, it's also how your brain's processing them. So for me, I tend to have a fairly masculine emotional profile most of the time, but if I have baby hormones floating around in my body, then I shift towards the feminine somewhat. Now, I don't want anybody to go away thinking that I'm typical. We've discussed the idea that you've met one trans person, you've met one trans person. Um, certainly no story involving a genderqueer Catholic lesbian who married a man and have seven children could possibly be considered typical of anything. Um, and, you know, for a lot of Christians, when, you know, we hear this sort of alphabet soup, LGBTQQ2SA, All we hear is the sound of the culture going down the toilet. But there's a reason why there's this complex and ever-expanding taxonomy within the queer community. And it's that there's a genuine concern not to shoehorn people into single homogenous narratives. Uh, A lot of my friends who have gender dysphoria have much more severe dysphoria than I do. Um, They don't get the reprieve of being pregnant most of their life. It's constant. It's relentless. It's accompanied by feelings of guilt of failure. Some of these people have gone to heroic lengths trying to live the biblical truth of masculinity and femininity, and they feel like such failures when they finally hit that wall and say, I just can't do this anymore. Um, As Mark mentioned, the suicide rate in this population is through the roof, and a lot of the same emotional problems that we often find in marginalized groups, what's often called minority stress, are absolutely present in the trans community. So I would ask you as Christian leaders to consider that we are to be ambassadors of healing. That doesn't mean that we are supposed to promise miracles that we can't deliver. Miracles are God's prerogative. But there are forms of healing that we are empowered to give. Compassion, support, love, reconciliation. And just the willingness when we encounter a person to see them as a person, not as a political problem, not as an icon of the breakdown of society, but as a human being fearfully made in the image and likeness of God. You're listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. And hopefully as you were listening to Melinda as she shared her struggle with gender dysphoria, you were encouraged not to give up on the truth of God's design for human sexuality 
but also to understand that in our broken world, people struggle. In reality, we all struggle at some level with some issues. So hopefully, as believers, we can extend grace to those in whatever struggle, but also help lead them to the freeing truth of the gospel. On that note, Gabe is joining us now. And Gabe, you have another talk from a recent Q conference from a good friend of yours. Tell us about him. Caleb Kaltenbach is a friend of mine that I've met over the last few years who's a lead pastor at Discovery Church in Simi Valley, California. And what's so unique about Caleb's story is that he's somebody who's really had to learn how to live out love and grace and truth. And and we talk a lot about those ideas, but sometimes you meet somebody and you realize their entire life has been shaped by having to learn to live in this tension, this tension of conviction and living by conviction but also loving people that you deeply might disagree with, but they're family members. They're somebody maybe you're close to, and you've had to learn how to wrestle with that. And and to add to that, the topic and the conversation that Caleb speaks about and talks about is the talk that you're going to hear today, my journey with gay parents. And so let's listen in now to Caleb share his story. I was two years old when my parents divorced. They were both professors at the University of Missouri, Columbia, where they taught philosophy, law, rhetoric, and uh, English literature. And when they divorced at two, I don't have much memory of that. What I do have memory of is that uh, my mom went into a same-sex relationship, and she was in a monogamous relationship with a woman who's a psychologist named Vera for 22 years, while my dad was never in a monogamous relationship, but he had several different relationships. And that was my experience. That was my childhood. I found out about my dad around college when I graduated, maybe a little after. My mom was, as I said, very loud, very proud. She was an activist. She joined the local board of directors for GLAAD in the Kansas City area. She took me with her to uh, campouts and parties and LGBT bars and pride parades. And I remember one pride parade, walking in it as an elementary-age kid, holding a sign. And at the end of the pride parade, there were all these Christians, quote-unquote, holding up signs saying, God hates you wants no room for you, and just other things that really don't even uh, deserve for me to say what those signs said. And if that wasn't offensive enough, they were spraying water and urine over everyone at the same time. And as a young kid, I looked at my mom and I said, why are they acting like this? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christians. Christians hate gay people. And, And I grew up watching people in my mother's community, young men who were dying of AIDS back in the 80s when nothing was being done about it, and watching their Christian families alienate them, not wanting anything to do with them. And so by the time I got to high school, uh, my worldview was out, was just out of control. I had no worldview. I wasn't centered. I would sneak out at night, go out and, and hang out and party it up. And, you know, back then my, my hair was down to here, and since then the Lord removeth and addeth. It's not funny. Um, <laughs> I ended up uh, being invited to go to a Christian Bible study led by a high schooler, four high schoolers, when I was in the 10th grade. And I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to go, and I'm going to be a ninja Christian. And I'm going to learn about Christianity and then attack their faith. And so I went. I grabbed one of my dad's old, dusty Bibles. I'd never owned a Bible before. And at 16, I had never stepped foot in a conservative Christian household before. And so I love these people, and I love Bible bookstores. I want you to know that I love both. But I'm just going to be honest. These people look like they raided a Bible bookstore. I mean, they had the potpourri smell, 
and even the, and even the testaments mints by the door that taste like cyanide. They had those. And so someone that had never stepped foot in an evangelical household, I, I look on the walls and I look at my friend and I said, why are there framed pictures of sheep and lions and a little shepherd kid holding a sheep? I said, is this part of the deal? If I turn Christian, do I have to get a sheep picture? Because I'm out. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and I went down and we started all reading through 1 Corinthians, a verse out of it. And I was in First Chronicles. And um, they get to me. I read a story about somebody getting impaled. And they said, where are you? And I, they said, I, I said, I'm in the old First uh, Chronicles. They said, oh, you're in the Old Testament. I said, so I guess there must be a new one. There's updated 2.0. I had no clue that there was one or the other. And the more that I studied, the more that I uh, began to learn about who Jesus was, I, I, I kept the idea that Christians are annoying, which, come on, I is one. And we all can be annoying sometimes. But Jesus was different. He was not like the people who alienated their kids. He was not like the people on the street corners. He's not like the people who are cray-cray on Facebook and post all these angry political posts that alienate both Republican, Democrat, and everybody in between. Jesus, on the other hand, he had very, very deep expectations for how we should live our lives. He had very, very uh, deep convictions theologically, but he also had very meaningful relationships with people who are not like him. And his spirituality was attractive to people who are not like him. And I could get on board with that. And I started studying, and I, and I came to this conclusion that I still hold today, that God designed intimacy for the expression of marriage between one man and one woman, and anything outside of that is not part of his design, it's actually sin. And I still hold that conclusion. But I also came to this conclusion that I still hold today, that a theological conviction is never a catalyst to devalue another human being. That if anything... Our theology should drive us to love people well and not alienate people. And so if you can imagine how a same-sex attracted teenager or a gay or lesbian teenager feels coming out to their conservative Christian parents, I was a 16-year-old coming out as a Christian to my three gay parents, and they kicked me out of the house. And I had to live from household to household. But, but here's something that I learned. I learned that the more that I read about Jesus, the more that I fell in love with Jesus, I learned that when we have a relationship with him and when we lean into him during difficult times, he gives us the margin to love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable. And eventually I went to uh, Bible college in southern Missouri. I don't know if you've ever been to southern Missouri. Um, don't go. It's... Um, <laughs> Most places when you go, the family trees branch out, and in southern Missouri, it's just one straight pole like this, just a line going up. And so I preached at small churches. I was actually invited uh, to go preach at a church, preach her for 18 months, and I, I finally was able to get my mom to come with me. I brought her, and then the next Sunday, they fired me because they said, we don't want you bringing somebody like your mom. And I walked out of there and I said, Lord, if you ever give me the chance to be able to lead a church, I want a church filled with messy, broken people who are cutting, who are hurting, who are in gangs, who are questioning their sexuality, who think they have it all together, who have been divorced eight times. I want all these people because the church is really a mosaic of broken lives that God has united together to glorify himself. And so how can we hold on to our convictions? Well, John chapter 1, verses 14 and 17 say that Jesus came full of both grace and truth. I mean, that's, that's good for him, right? He's God. Good for you. It's got a corner market. But for us humans, that's difficult. 
And I think that most people in this room, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, you could either be defined as being all about grace or all about truth, or maybe you're all about the mercy or all about the rules. But I want to make a point here that if you are just only about grace or truth, and you're just about the grace and the love and that's it, or just about the truth and that's it, that's weak, that's immature, and that's so unchristlike. Because Jesus refused to take sides, he stood for both. Because people who are all about the grace, that's like holding a rubber band by one side over here. You know, it's weak, it's flimsy, and these people, we love them, but they're like, God loves you, God loves everybody. And their version of God is Olaf the Snowman or Buddy the Elf. I mean, come on, God loves everybody. But then they're the truthers over here. We love them, they're annoying too. They know the Bible well, they want you to know that they know the Bible well. And they're so mature. So spiritually mature, they add extra syllables to Jesus' name when they say it. It's not Jesus, it's Jesus when they talk about the Lord like this. But I want to make a point. It's weak, it's flimsy, but check this out. If we say, I'm not going to take sides, I'm going to stand for both grace and truth like Jesus, where's the power? The power resides in the tension of the two. And you feel this tension all the time. I love my friend but the Bible says this, but my friend's doing this, but the Bible says, but my, you know, I'm doing this, but God's word says this. And I know what this tension is right here that's uncomfortable. It's love. Love is the tension that we feel between grace and truth. And when we just go to one side or the other, we're choosing to run away from love. And Jesus stood for both. And it's not like you don't already live in tension in your faith already, as you believe in one God, but the Trinity, like there's no tension. You believe that Jesus is fully God, fully human. The Bible is written by God, but by people. Love God, love people. God is in control, but we have free will and responsibility. You can be a good communicator and still have hair. Come on. (laughs) There's tension all throughout our faith. Why should there not be tension in how we love people? Because when there's tension, when we live in the tension, lives changed. Before I I went to go pastor Discovery Church in 2013, I was in Dallas, Texas for three and a half years. My parents moved there separately of one another. And and they started attending the church I was preaching at, even though they knew my convictions. People in my church treated them well. They lived in that tension. And two weeks before I left, both of them gave their lives to the Lord. Because we chose to live in the tension of grace and truth. And I pray that you will get messy with me and live in the tension of grace and truth. Thank you so much. What a powerful talk by Caleb and the response at Q was people were just really affected by it, by the ability for him to live in this tension, to challenge the church, uh, but also to just be honest about the reality. And I would encourage you to learn more about Caleb. He, he wrote a wonderful book called Messy Grace, How a Pastor with Gay Parents Learned to Love Others Without Sacrificing Conviction. It's very much the story you just heard, but much more in depth as he walks through his feelings about all of this and, and each season of life, what that's been like for him to lead. But it's such an important thing for us as Christians to understand. You know, this conversation around LGBT is one that has just been so difficult, controversial. The church hasn't always done a good job in how it addresses this. And yet we know that today, if you say you're a Christian, that's one of the first questions that comes up. It's one of the first conversation points that you're going to have. And so it's important to be equipped on it. You know, here at Q, we did a podcast series because we appreciated 
the depth of this and the need in which it, it takes so many different conversations to better understand how to engage this conversation. So we created a whole podcast series. Over 25 voices contribute to it. Caleb is one of those. Tim Keller is one of those. So many other voices that we trust that we're able to help just shed light on this and help us understand how to think about this theologically, how to think about it in our ministry, how to think about it in the public square, how to think about it in politics. And we really try to break it down episode by episode. My co-host, Preston Sprinkle, is a wonderful voice on this and, and has such good perspective. And so you can listen to that. You can learn more about that at qideas.org slash podcast. And you can also go back into the thread of these podcast episodes and see it uh, right at the beginning of all of our podcasts. This was some of our first episodes. And if you want to go deeper into that, share that with friends. Let it be a place to create conversations of substance that really humanize the individuals in our lives and around us who, who might believe differently about this, who are experiencing same-sex attraction, and who, who think differently than us, and where it can create a more substantive conversation, a well-rounded conversation about all of the many dynamics that, that are part of this complex moment and a complex moment in conversation for the church that we need to be more equipped in, more versed in, and have the ability to talk about this with confidence and also with grace. And so in addition to that, another resource is provided by City on a Hill, and it's called Messy Grace. And it's actually Caleb in a video format, actually talking with a community of people and teaching around some of these same concepts much longer than this nine-minute talk was, but would be another in-depth, wonderful experience to have where you could have community around and have a deep conversation about this and about how the church should be engaging with those in which we disagree because it doesn't just apply to the topic of sexuality. It should apply to every area in which we need to be applying grace in all of our lives. We all need it. And so you can learn more about that at cityonahillstudio.com. And we look forward to just continuing to learn together, to delve into these topics. And sometimes they're controversial, they're difficult, but they also challenge us and inspire us and help introduce you to people and to voices that maybe otherwise you would never get to hear from. And we think it's important that we hear the numerous stories out there of people who are trying to lead and, and do well and be courageous and live by conviction and be faithful as we engage our cultural moment. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.